The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Lightstream. Credit card bills, people, right? Am I right? Every month you get them. There's multiple payments. There's multiple due dates. It's an enormous pain. Wouldn't it be easier to have just one payment and at a lower rate? It would indeed, Josh, I think. Right? It would. And it turns out you can if you get a credit card consolidation loan from our friends at Lightstream. In fact, you can get a rate as low as 5.95% APR with AutoPay. The online application is so easy, you can apply right from your phone. And you can get a loan from five large to a hundred large. That's five grand to a hundred thousand dollars with no fees. And then you can get that money as soon as the day you apply. Just for our listeners, apply now to get a special interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Westwing. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Westwing. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Westwing for more information. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Joshua Molina. And I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And today we're talking about episode six from season seven, The Al Smith Dinner. It was directed by Leslie Linka Glotter, or Leslie Linda Glotter, as autocorrect would have me say. And it was written by Eli Addy, or Eli Attic, <laughs> as autocorrect would have me say. Is this going to be a thing for the rest of the episode? It's going to be a thing or a think. We'll see. <laughs> In this episode, both candidates are gearing up for the Al Smith dinner, a real thing that happens in New York, as we'll discuss later. And the entire episode and indeed the dinner is framed around their respective positions on abortion. There's a negative attack ad that comes out from an independent committee funded by big Republican donors, and it escalates everything between what has been so far a mostly civil campaign between Santos and Vidic. Also, Will takes over Toby's old job. Huzzah. I really like this episode. I like this episode too. I really liked the season six primary campaigning episodes, and I really like the season seven campaign episodes too. Yeah, as do I. I think Eli does a very good job in the writing of sort of building a credible escalation in campaigning in this episode and, and the, the back and forth. Yeah, the back and forth is what I really liked. We've talked a little bit about it already that we're getting into some of the stuff we didn't get to have with the Bartlett campaign, you know, some of the real, the real nitty gritty of what you have to do. And this episode is all about the nitty gritty of really like almost like a minute by minute reaction from one side to the other about what they're doing. And then meanwhile, there are these external actions that cause both sides to have to react as well. Yes. This is similar to what, what is the other episode we recently discussed where it was uh, back and forth and immediate reactions where I felt like it may be at times strained credibility. It was the one where Santos was going to do his reserve duty training. That's right. That and, and the broken bed. Exactly. Somehow this, this one felt, although I enjoyed that other episode as well, this one felt entirely plausible to me. Yeah. I think also it felt both nittier and grittier because I think the parsing of their stances on abortion requires like a, a kind of subtlety here. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's a similar kind of thing with the invocation of the military service where the Democratic candidate gets to try and court national security, you know, even though he's coming from the left on so many things because of his military record. Here, it's a similar kind of dynamic where you have these two candidates who are trying to express something original about themselves, only instead of national security and, the, and border patrol, it's about 
abortion. And interesting also to see how the candidates' positioning of their actual views affects their ability to open up their appeal a little bit to the quote-unquote other side, but also affects, of course, uh, the support they might receive from their base. Yeah, and there's just some element of math involved. Okay, we can pick up these many points by going to people who are outside of our normal base, but then do we lose an equal number on the other side, or, or do we get to hold on to those? You know, there's, I'm sure, somewhere a lot of Excel spreadsheets being crunched. Yes, exactly. It felt that way to me. And one of the interesting tensions of this episode is sort of the juxtaposition of that kind of political calculus with very, very important issues. So, you know, the political stakes versus the ethical stakes. Mm -hmm. And the Nebraska stakes. I mean, and the Omaha stakes. The Omaha stakes. Autocorrect. (laughs) Man, I need autocorrect. We need need auto fact checked correct. Man, that would slow us down. <laughs> no, it's it's auto. It happened for us. Not to be confused with the guy who works on the Santos campaign, auto. Correct. <laughs> okay, I'm with you. <laughs> okay, so we start the episode 63 days before Election Day. The episode starts 63 days before Election Day. The Santos campaign is in Dearborn, Michigan, and the Vinick team is at their campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. On the Santos side, they're continuing their debate about debates. Basically, Santos wants to engage in a debate with Vinick because he needs to prove himself still. And that's really the best platform for him to get FaceTime with the American people. Yes. And at the same time, he wants to avoid the optics of seeming desperate. Yeah. That's what I love about this episode, the push and pull between trying to get what you want and not trying to look bad for seeming to want the thing that you want. Right. It's kind of like dating. Yeah, it definitely is. (laughs) That's Maybe that's why you liked this episode. It's kind of like... The Bachelor, maybe? I still haven't seen it, but I imagine there's some parallels around, uh, you know, being coy and being direct. Yeah, that must be it. I didn't connect the two in my mind, but I think you're right. It comes down to uh, my, <laughs> my enjoyment of The Bachelor. Okay. <laughs> Bachelor in Paradise starting soon. I think by the time this airs, Bachelor in Paradise will have convened and uh, just very heady, exciting times for any television watcher of discriminating taste. They could just do another version that's The Bachelor or The Bachelorette on the campaign trail. And it might mirror something like this. Yes. And it might draw no viewers. Or it might draw a lot and you end up with Donald Trump as the president. Also possible. I just realized where our reality show metaphor was leading, which was (laughs) to 2016. Yeah, there you go. I think it was uh, Andrew Yang in the second of the second debates, 2B, was it, where he made the... uh, he scored points with what obviously was a pre-scripted comment. Wait, now I have to look it up. Andrew Yang, Phillips Exeter Academy. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know. So Andrew Yang's quote was, We're up here with makeup on our faces and our rehearsed attack lines, playing roles in this reality TV show. It's one reason why we elected a reality TV star as our president. We need to be laser focused on solving the real challenges of today. I love that he sort of calls out rehearsed attack lines as he's delivering in a, a rehearsed, rehearsed attack, attack line. line. <laughs> yeah, I like to. That's very meta. Well done. Mm-hmm. I never met an attack line I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> the timing, again, is great. You know, we're talking about this debate episode while debates are happening all around us. And it goes to show, I mean, there are people who are being talked about, even if they're not being talked about in the most flattering of ways, they're being talked about right now who weren't being talked about before the debates started. Indeed. 
And so you can see why Santos does need it and why Vinick doesn't want it, because he can just run out the clock, essentially. Yes, exactly. That nine-point lead is uh, ample. Mm -hmm. So here's one issue that I have based on the mechanics of the West Wing that we already know, that we've already established in our podcast. And I think really any sophisticated television viewer knows as well. I mean, there's, there's a certain element of like, well, we know we're at episode six. We're in the middle of the season. And Sheila keeps saying things like, She's the next president of the United States. Would you please stop saying that? Which to me, it feels like they're revealing too much because you know that if in the West Wing, if somebody celebrates their success too early, it doesn't work out for them. Mm. Hubris. Yeah. And Sheila doesn't go outside. She doesn't turn around or, you know, three times or spit or anything. That's a fair point. Didn't occur to me as it happened. So you're saying you think Santos is going to win. I feel like they're setting things up in a three act structure where each act takes several episodes to play out where we're getting this idea of like, yeah, okay. Santos is the underdog, but we already know that this feels a little bit like reinforcing it a little bit too much. Hmm. I mean, we've seen it in many West Wing episodes where they celebrate something in the cold open only to have the rest of the episode be about them trying to solve the problems that come up immediately afterwards. Right. Even Bruno. Bruno says, Santos pulled out of North Dakota and West Virginia. There was not a single state we're not competing in. We could win all 50, get used to it, Senator. Yes. And later, later he's feeling even better and uh, posits that they will win 53 states. That's right. <laughs> And then through the power of suggestion, Vinick then says something about somebody being 53 feet away from him. I was hoping 53 would then be name-checked or number-checked throughout the episode. <laughs> That's good. I like that. It feels realistic. Yes, I thought so too. Yeah, it's a nice detail. If you're wondering who Al Smith is, luckily, in the cold open, we get a, can I call it a telebrama? Oh, I went with Bram's splanation, but sure. <laughs> well, Bram's not doing the splanation himself. Oh, No. Oh, you're right. He poses the question. Telebrama. <laughs> yeah. He asks, Who's Al Smith anyway? And, you know, and this is where it just gets silly, but, you know, you just got to get the business of TV done, where Bram says, Why is a dinner such a big deal? <laughs> like, all right. Well, come, <laughs> you come over here and sit on my lap, Bram, and I'll teach you a little bit about politics. I love, I love that scene, that, that line. It really feels like everybody's like, well, we're just doing this thing that we need to do. Like, the way that, that... That's right. The way that Matthew Del Negro delivers that line you know, almost like he's in on it too he's like all right well he like he almost turns to the camera <laughs> like, and winks spiritually and says well somebody's gotta ask exactly so why is the dinner such a big deal that you would name an episode after it it would have been funny if the next line were just santa saying you're fired <laughs> right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you don't know anything how did you get into this room <laughs> So, yes, the dinner is held in honor of Alfred E. Smith, not to be confused with Newman, four-time governor of New York, first Catholic candidate nominated for president back in the 20s. It is held on the third Thursday of October. It's hosted by the Archbishop of New York. It's a benefit, and all the dinner's proceeds go to benefiting the neediest children of New York, regardless of race, creed, or color. Very nice. It's been a place where presidential candidates speak since 1960. JFK and Richard Nixon spoke at it, and uh, and almost without exception. There have been a couple of exceptions, and those are kind of uh, hinted at here. In 1996, President Clinton was not invited to speak because of a bill that he vetoed, mm -hmm. a bill that would have outlawed late-term abortions. Yeah, I think that uh, this episode in its way is sort of referencing that. Yep. And also in 2004, John Kerry, who is a Catholic, a pro-choice Roman Catholic, was 
also not invited. Neither Kerry nor Bush were invited. There was some speculation that the real reason behind that was because Kerry is pro-choice. You would think that they, it would, there would be a lot of excitement or, you know, there would be a lot of interest in having a presidential Catholic candidate appear, but because of his pro-choice views, that didn't happen. And so I think that was a lot of uh, fuel for this episode too. Yeah. So they're good with helping the kids regardless of creed, but not so much with inviting candidates right. regardless of creed. No, I mean, I think creed really makes a big difference. Sometimes the going gets a little rocky for some of those candidates. <laughs> not great Apollo's ghost. Well done. <laughs> okay, so, uh, by the way, I think there's a kind of a roasty quality to the Al Smith dinner in terms of what the candidates say. And John F. Kennedy kind of kicked that off. He had this zinger that has gotten referenced, uh, you know, in the years since, which was, uh, it was about the Wall Street Journal criticizing Nixon. Sure. And he said, that's like Osservatore Romano criticizing the Pope. Wowza. <laughs> Zach, insert cricket sound. <laughs> no, it killed. I think it killed. Oh, I'm sure it did that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, he, that was, that he, he could read the room. Guess so. That's a room that likes a good Pope joke. <laughs> and I think Nixon responded by trying to make some joke about how uh, the Jews were ruining the country. <laughs> Essentially. Which probably played well. No, I take he, that back. He made a joke, I think, about, I don't know if it, it maybe joke is too generous. He made a comment about JFK wearing a black tie to what is a white tie affair. Hmm. I like it. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like appearance jokes. Go for it. It's like, hmm, how, how dare you wear that brand of monocle? <laughs> Did you see his top hat? <laughs> that doesn't go with his cane. <laughs> All right, so back, back to our episode. Sure. Bram says, a ballroom full of Catholics should be your crowd. Vinick doesn't even go to church. And Santos's final line in the telebrama made me laugh. He said, that's just what I need, huh? contest of who gets the most booze for the line i support a woman's right to choose i liked it not only because of the internal rhyme but also because huh. the huh. first time i heard it i thought he was talking about who would get the most alcohol oh nice <laughs> like as a prize i really misheard it for just a second it was like a contest over who gets the most booze yeah you get extra enjoyment by not having the closed caption on that's right oh i <laughs> guess i could have solved for that if that i had killed it for thing. me yep <laughs> And then Santos has a very relatable moment. Well, actually, both candidates have sort of relatable food moments. Santos puts a cookie in his mouth and then pats his gut when he sees himself in the mirror. And then he puts down the cookie and picks up some grapes. Yes. Remarkable self-control. <laughs> and Arnie Vinick gets into his office and he looks down at what seems to be, based on his expression, a very disappointing looking burger. Yes. I would rather they had cut to Arnie Vinnick eating out of a three-gallon container of ice cream, but <laughs> that's just me. I'm big oh, on callbacks. Man. You know how private detectives have a bottle of whiskey in their bottom drawer? Sure. <laughs> I'm going to start keeping a three-gallon <laughs> tub of ice cream in the bottom drawer of my desk at the studio. Or just a flask of ice cream in your hip pocket. <laughs> a hip flask of ice cream would probably <laughs> melt enough to the point where I would just be sipping it. Chocolate hip flask is my favorite flavor of ice cream. <laughs> Chocolate hip flask is my favorite band at Lollapalooza this year. <laughs> so both candidates are watching the same news program about their coverage because they're both, you know, news hounds and also slightly narcissistic. Right. And then a commercial airs 
neither of them know about it, but a commercial airs, it's paid for by the Committee for the Integrity of Human Life. And it attacks Santos for his pro-choice views, which are in actuality very close to Vinick's. This November, America faces a vote of conscience. Matt Santos on human life. Do I want to limit access to abortion? No. Turn on MSNBC. I like how that moment plays out and how they both are seeing the ad, realizing this isn't coming from us, is it coming from the other guy, and in fact it's coming from a third party, this 527. I like how they both react to it like it's bad news. Mm -hmm. That's what I really love about this episode, that these factors, again, that should potentially be helping one side or another, it's all bad for everyone. Yeah, I had to keep pausing through this episode and, and think about each new event and how it might affect because it's interesting how everything cuts both ways yeah it's all the, the, the nuance and the subtlety is kind of fascinating yeah it really is it takes this from just sort of a campaign episode of the week kind of setup into a really thoughtful place i also like the idea that each calls their uh whatever aide de camp and says turn on msnbc as if there's actually could happen so quickly that they could catch the rest of the 30 second ad that's currently <laughs> airing <laughs> got it <laughs> yeah so this ad is bad for everyone because it becomes this external catalyst in a potential negative ad war between the two sides. And I love how they talk about this in the episode. It has this feeling of almost like Cold War, you know, mutually assured nuclear. Oh, I was just about to say Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, there is this feeling of super high stakes, which of course it is, presidential campaign, and the feeling that the situation is fraught. It's so sensitive that, you know, any little move, even not instigated by one side or the other, could set off this domino effect into an explosion. Yeah, and they've lived so far in this kind of uneasy calm where neither side is going negative, even though the RNC is coming up with negative ads against Santos, and the Santos campaign have tried to come up with some of their own as well. <laughs> Josh is measuring people for chicken suit. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> He's like, I got another one in me. But neither candidate actually wants to go negative, even though they know that this can be an effective tool. They both have good West Wingy idealistic cords that really want to just keep things clean, keep things about the issues. But then this Committee for the Integrity of Human Life comes in and throws a wrench into the works. And then it immediately sets off sort of uh, how do we react to avoid this and who's going to denounce this spot? You know, can Vinick himself even denounce it or is that a loss for him? Yeah, that uneasy calm has been punctured. And so it's like, well, what are the choices here? The only option to try and get back to some measure of relative calm is for them to denounce it immediately and vehemently so they can say, look, we weren't behind it and go back to things as usual. But in the absence of that, it feels like they're implicitly endorsing the ad and therefore we're off to the races in negative ads. Mm -hmm. And people are split on it. You know, like the RNC chairman shows up and he says he is not going to denounce it. That's Dean Norris as Steve Hodder, the fabulous Dean Norris, whom we all know from Breaking Bad and many, many, many other things, including Brad Whitford's post-West Wing series, The Good Guys. And also including Jimmy Smith's pre-West Wing series, NYPD Blue. We've had two guest stars that we, you know, we know from other shows, Dean Norris and Peter McKenzie, you know, who recently showed up as George Rohr, the uh, lobbyist for the Christian right. Mm -hmm. And... In these two other shows, we, you know, we talked about Peter McKenzie and uh, Heart of Dixie, and we're talking about Dean Norris and NYPD Blue. In both cases, they played priests. 
Oh, God, you're good. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> On NYPD Blue, Dean Norris played uh, Father Jerry Downey. So it's, it's you know, I guess people get typecast for being on the, like on one side or the other of the abortion debate. Apparently. Apparently. And what's what's interesting is that like in the episode, both candidates are kind of pitted against their own parties. Like here's how they put it in the meeting between Vinnick and Hodder. You realize how many states my pro-choice position puts on the table? You realize how we can grow this party if we're willing to reach out? I guess I'd like to see unite the party that we have now. I'm not denouncing that ad. I don't think you want to either, Arnie. And then on the other side of it, later on, you know, we have, after much consternation, we have Leo and Santos talking. They're talking about this pro-choice lobbying group endorsing one of the candidates or the other, and they're going to meet with them, and Leo says, Tell them you're taking the stage at the Auschwitz dinner right next to Vinnick and defending a woman's right to choose. And be ready for me to be the only guy clapping. So I'm the abortion without limits guy, huh? We're the pro-choice party. You got to dance with the one who brung you. And much later in the episode, we get their actual core positions on the thing that kind of put them actually like a little bit on the other side of one another. Well, are you talking about uh, uh, Santos's later admission that he considers life to begin at conception? Yes. I think what you're trying to say is that ultimately, and I think this is one of the strengths of this episode and surprise sort of turns, is that when we get down to, regardless of the politics of it, what the candidates themselves believe, we discover, and I think it's quite a moment, that Santos confides to Leo that he believes that life begins at the moment of conception, regardless of what his political stance on abortion is, and Vinnick further clarifies that he's a government-stay-out-of-our-lives Republican. Yeah, he he really says that the Republican Party's macroscopic platform should be on the side of upholding Roe v. Wade. I joined this party because the liberals were the ones who always wanted something from the government. And we just wanted government to leave us alone, especially when there's no consensus otherwise. I'm trying to lead the majority who agrees on that. Yeah, they're both kind of stunning concessions in their ways. It's a mind bender. Yeah, and it really bends them towards one another, the hair splitting that has to go on in this to try and position one candidate in a different light than the other on their abortion stance is really neat. Yeah. The other external factor that comes in besides this attack ad is the idea of an endorsement from a pro-choice lobbying group. That's yet another curveball that comes at them because it is very bad for the Santos campaign to have, you know, a group that should be really at the core of Democratic support, endorsing a Republican. And for Vinnick, he also doesn't want that to happen in a way because even though he is a pro-choice candidate, getting the endorsement of a belief that he has already publicly held is going to alienate people who disagree with that position. Right. It's what we discussed earlier, which is that, you know, it's almost with uh, each new beat in this episode, somewhere in the background, my mind's crunching numbers as are theirs. You know, yeah. this endorsement feels like it could be the coup de grace uh, for, it could be the end of Santos's campaign. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, Vinick's got to wonder how many votes he's going to lose from his base if he gets this endorsement or if in any way seems to be courting it. And that's, I think, the part that I'm so fascinated by. Vinick is a pro-choice candidate. There's his voting record. He knows it, but like he has to do this dance where he has Ray Sullivan as his running mate. He makes this pledge of giving the nominations, you know, a special consideration or whatever, you know, Ray Sullivan's going to be in charge of it, which means they're going to appoint pro-life judges. 
And he ultimately decides to go to the Al Smith dinner and discuss his opposition to so-called partial birth abortion. Right. And he's doing all these dance moves to try and balance out what is essentially his publicly held position, which is that he's pro-choice. Like, they're still trying to hold on to the idea that people who disagree with him will vote for him anyway. And so he has to give all these concessions in opposition to his own beliefs. Right. Well said. It's not like some kind of bargaining where where you say, okay, I know you disagree with me on this, and that's not going to change. But here are these other things that I stand for, and I want to try and convince you with that. It's still focused on the one issue of abortion and just trying to, I don't know, dress up a pro-life candidate in this artificial anti-choice wardrobe. I don't know how people are actually going to buy it. No, I agree, which I think is also speaks to why the two candidates are sort of hesitant to get into that arena. Yeah, because they know that the attack ad from Santos is going to be on hypocrisy. Right. They know where the the attack should be aimed because it's a weak spot that they acknowledge. Mm Mm-hmm. It's really cool. It's really cool, Josh. I like it it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a really, really... I like when things get uh, nuanced and super complicated. Yeah. And it also it speaks to, overall, a pretty crafty situation and framework that John Wells and company have created for this final season. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, more Westman Weekly. Rishi, did you know that according to the FBI, the average loss in a burglary is over two grand? That can be hard to recover from. That's serious. Yeah. And right now, it's summer. July and August are when the most burglaries happen. It's stealing time. The crazy thing is that only one in five homes actually have home security. Yeah, that makes no sense. But maybe that's because most companies don't make it that easy for you to get it. It can be confusing. It can be expensive. Yeah, it can take a lot of time to get it set up. It's kind of a hassle. But that's not the case with Simply Safe. Simply Safe will protect every one of your doors and windows in all of the rooms with 24/7 professional monitoring. That's right, and they make it easy on you. There's no contract, no hidden fees, no fine print. You can check out all the awards that they've won from CNET to the wire cutter from the New York Times. But the thing that makes Simply Safe really stand out is their video verification technology. That's right. They're able to visually confirm that the break-in is happening, and that allows police to get to the scene three and a half times faster than other home security companies. Because false alarms happen with some regularity, a lot of times police assume that it's a false alarm, and your home security alert goes to the bottom of the list, but that doesn't happen with this. So visit simplysafe.com slash West Wing, and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. Yeah, you've got nothing to lose. So go now to simplysafe.com slash West Wing. Make sure you go to slash West Wing so that they know that we sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash West Wing. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. How we love Squarespace. Squarespace is the engine behind our website. Squarespace is so easy to use and so easy to set up that if you have an idea that you want to put out there in the world, you can get it up and running in minutes with the Squarespace site. Say you're an actor like Josh here and you want to make a website, joshmolina.com. Well, joshmolina.com doesn't exist yet, but it could. Go ahead, sign up, beat me to it. (laughs) Oh man, we're inviting trouble. But you could (laughs) troll Josh by getting joshmolina.com set up and uh, just make a fan site dedicated to all of the ways in which you're crushing on Josh. You could do that with a Squarespace site using one of their beautiful templates. And the great thing is, not only do you get a website through Squarespace, you can also get a domain like joshmolina.com. You can get both the address 
and the actual website. Right. But you might want to do it for yourself. Grab that domain and share with the world. You can share your thoughts in blog form. You can sell your product or service. You can share your creativity in so many ways. And Squarespace makes it easy. I made my website with Squarespace. It's rishikesh.co. And I can tell you, it was easy. It took me an afternoon to get the whole thing set up. So go make your website. Go to squarespace.com slash West Wing and you'll get a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code WESTWING to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash WESTWING, and the offer code is WESTWING. The WESTWING Weekly is brought to you by Native, whose motto is take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. Native creates simple, safe, effective products that people use in the bathroom every day. That's right. Their deodorant is formulated without aluminum, parabens, or talc. It's filled with ingredients found in nature. You got your coconut oil. You got your shea butter. You've got your tapioca starch. It's also Pluey approved because there's no animal testing involved. That's right. You get free shipping and returns with Native, so why not try it? I'm here to tell you it works. I smell awesome. They have great scents, including stuff like eucalyptus and mint, which I really like. They also have lavender and rose. It just makes sense to buy it. I see what you did there. For 20% off your first purchase, go to nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code WESTWING for checkout. That's 20% off on your first purchase simply by visiting nativedeodorant.com and using the promo code WESTWING when you check out. All right, stinkers, stop stinking. Get to it. And now, back to the show. Let me switch gears here for a second onto a slightly more frivolous path three things and this will eventually be a transition but uh i feel like i, I know what one of them's gonna be but let's see let's see <laughs> yeah, if you hit it i think you know too first let's start with bruno's tie did you notice bruno's leopard print tie mm, i didn't damn it it's probably for the best i didn't spot it <laughs> margaret's outfit is also pretty special in this episode mm. it's a particular shade of chartreuse let's say and i love it it just feels like it's a great character choice and then the last thing that I noticed in terms of appearance was a particular <laughs> pan line formation on the back of Will's neck. What the hell <laughs> Wait, is going on? I was hoping you would have the answer. You know, I honestly have nothing to say uh, that, would, that would be edifying on this issue. It is absolutely stunning. There is what appears to be like a white picket fence burnt into the sunburn on the back of my neck very noticeably yep at what i track to be about the 10 minute and 40 second mark it's, it's difficult to get precise with netflix yeah a little earlier i think around 10 30 10 30 take a look people and of course we will post an embarrassing still <laughs> i don't know what to say it's on the back of your neck in a way that feels like it had to have been either some kind of weird collar or piece of jewelry that was on your, you know, on your otherwise quite red neck. Yeah, it put me in mind of a very weird, uh, <laughs> odd moment I had one morning when I woke up and I had an, what looked like an imprint on my arm of some sort of um, letters of the alphabet. <laughs> and then a little bit of ink, like pen ink, that looked to me a little bit like a swastika. <laughs> and I came out to my wife, I said, I, 
I think I was abducted by aliens last <laughs> night. I've got a series of marks and messages. Never quite understood what the ink thing was, but apparently I had leaned against like a Nike shoe and could, uh, my wife figured out forensically that I had just the imprint of something <laughs> with with an English word on it that had pushed against my arm. Wait, do you have some weird limited edition swastika Nike? Not quite sure what the swastika was about. I guess it was just unfortunate... Um, <laughs> ink stain on my arm but i literally was saying to my wife i think I'm, i there's still about nine percent of me that thinks i was abducted and some sort of experiments were conducted <laughs> but uh, my wife never lets me forget that uh. <laughs> but yeah so here is again i i couldn't tell you first of all i'm as i think has been established earlier in this podcast i'm very anti-sun and I hate sunburn. So for me to get sunburned at all is odd because I, I, I hit the back of the neck hard and often. And also, you know, on a shoot day, I mean, maybe I wasn't working the day before and I was out in the sun, but it seems very unlikely. But it's just absolutely inexplicable why, inexplicable why there are these symmetric U-shaped marks of whiteness against the sunburn in the back of my neck, made all the more puzzling by the fact that there's a pretty clear shot of Will's neck at around the 20-minute mark, in which there are no markings and no apparent sunburn. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I thought was so interesting was the fact that you are so anti-sun, and yet you got that endorsement from the pro-sun lobby. It just really (laughs) complicated things. That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I remember you saying that you had taken a pretty long summer vacation because of the, because of your shortened Mm. schedule for the seventh season. That's a good point. And so I was wondering if maybe this was the first thing that you filmed after coming back from whatever, you know, sun-drenched TV (laughs) star vacation you'd been on. (laughs) Yeah, possible. Although I wasn't in the episode previous to this without sunburn. And I, I don't know. It's the whole thing is a complete. I, maybe somebody out there can tell me what disease I'm going to get later in life that <laughs> that is marked by odd U-shaped yeah markings twenty years earlier. Or, I don't know. Yeah, not so much a disease as a disuse. <laughs> Perhaps so. Yes. The storyline around Will though is that he is basically playing goalie for the White House. He is not to let any question in. He can't let anything past him. Right. Well said. But they send him out there without pads. That's right. That's right. And it was, it's great to see you doing a press briefing. I believe your first scene for the West Wing ever was also a press briefing. That is true. That is indeed true. I think I've gotten... Uh, I got worse at them. <laughs> but in fairness, they, they have sent me out there without any information, uh, quite intentionally on mm-hmm. CJ's part, uh, as to the situation with Toby Ziegler and the leak and his admission. They were trying to give me full plausible deniability. Not that I can deny any pardon it myself, but I can deny any knowledge of anything because nobody's told me <laughs> the first thing about this situation. Yeah, Will is now the communications director. I was a little confused because I thought we had established that he was going to move into the old Will slash Rob slash Annabeth office without it had been established, but then instead he moves into Toby's office. Yeah, somebody was like, we already paid for the ball. Let's use it again. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no way that ball could be in the uh, other office. I don't know. No. Yeah, he moves into Toby's office. There's still a Spalding in the drawer, which is strange because it had been, you know, thoroughly raided by the Justice Department. What if there was like a mini USB in there with military secrets? I like that. Or what if it just, you know, in little Toby scrawl said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leak the story about the military shuttle. It's <laughs> just written on the ball. Yep. Yeah. Not so thorough, the team that uh, scanned the office. Mm-hmm. 
There's a line that made me laugh too. Again, an unintentional one, but uh, there's a reporter in one of the briefings that says, Will, did any of the White House senior staff know that Toby Ziegler was leaking national security secrets? And so the thing about just that phrasing, was leaking national security information, made me laugh because I just imagined like Intel seeping out of his suit. <laughs> yeah, we should have patched him up. <laughs> yeah. But the strategy is called by CJ to let the press punch themselves out. That's what she says. Yeah, a little rope-a-dope. Yeah. And it ends up actually working. After doing it enough times, they stop asking questions about the leak and they start asking about whatever, you know, minor thing that Will's briefing them about it instead. Right. And I love that Eli actually has, he has Will come to drop by CJ's office, uh, kind of expecting an attaboy, and he gets nothing from her. (laughs) I love that too. Did you see today's briefing? Yeah. We need a better answer on the energy bill. Not your fault. DOE's been dickering around. Right. And then just the air, all the air goes out of the scene and I just walk out. (laughs) Yeah. I wrote, I wrote, Will wants a cookie from CJ after the press strategy works. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not getting it. I also laughed at, I laughed, I laughed at how bluntly she put it to him. Don't you want me to have a shred of credibility in the briefing? Your room? ignorance is your credibility. It's why I put you in <laughs> And I thought, like, maybe years later when he's out of the White House and he writes a book, she can blurb it by saying, his ignorance is his credibility. <laughs> CJ does not want to give him a cookie because she's like, yeah, this was the plan. You just did it according to plan. Yeah, he should be bringing her a cookie. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that strategy reminded me of an earlier West Wing episode. I was thinking about an exchange that Josh and Donna have where he says um getting political reporters to write about issues is like trying to get kids to eat their vegetables do you remember that yes and he's trying to get her to go along with it and she's like don't you want to know how it's like getting kids to eat the vegetables shave and shower it helps if there's nothing else on their plate mm-hmm. and that's basically the strategy here again that's right but then i zoomed out to the what the actual context of that quote was and and coincidentally it was about them trying to get away from an issue story about how they messed up a thing with the RU486 birth control legislation. Uh, so it was an interesting coincidence that that quote that came up was also about RU486. No, I'm against 86. <laughs> Did Josh Lyman's reference to Chiller Theater resonate with you on any level? He says at one point to uh, Lou that there's a they're talking about an ad. Hey, did you talk to Joey Lucas? She's got another version of our flip-flop spot without the Monster Chiller theater music. Not only did I not get that, it didn't even hit me in the brain hard enough for me to think, let me go look that up. Sure. Well, that's because you're young and I am old. Chiller theater maybe started in the 60s, but when I was a kid in the 70s, it was... um, I don't even remember what the actual substance was. I guess it was they would do these intros to old scary movies or maybe it was an anthology series. I can't even remember what stuck with me and I suspect stuck with millions of other young tri-staters was the intro graphic and music and sound. It was like a six-fingered human hand emerging from like a swamp of blood and there's a dead tree in the background and the letters chiller come out. And then the hand kind of eats each letter and there's just <laughs> horrific music and sound. It's very scary. And as soon as I heard that in the as I watched this episode on Netflix, I sent the image from the opening to my sister and she just texted it back like, ah, because <laughs> <laughs> I knew it would resonate with her. There's another horror reference in, in here too. one that I did catch where Vinick calls Donna Tippy Hedren. 
Yes, I know. I wasn't even sure why the reference to Tippi Hedren, famously of uh, The Birds and other movies. Yeah, I really hear people re- referencing Tippi Hedren in relation to The Birds. And I thought that it was a little bit of a mean dig at Donna because I think the idea is that, you know, Tippi Hedren's running around flapping her arms around trying to get birds to stop attacking her head. But maybe it's just that he was saying, oh, here's a pretty blonde woman. Yeah, I thought it might have been an, an old guy's way of saying the blonde. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get to that now. Uh yes. Donna's found her way back onto the campaign. And I, this was the one thing that, while I liked and I sort of got the dramatic value of it, I wondered, one, whether Lou would really do that behind Josh's back. Probably, I would think she would have some sense of this is the kind of thing maybe I should run by him. Although, knowing Lou, she's a bit of a maverick, and maybe that's exactly why she didn't. But also, it's interesting that Donna would have taken a position and immediately gone on camera without having touched base with Josh who she knows objects to her being on the campaign. I buy all of it, and I love all of it. Let's go to Lou for a second before we get to Donna, because it is through Lou's machinations that we get Donna back in this in this episode. Lou is a different kind of character than our normal set of heroes. True. Really, even she's different from Vinick, who, you know, at some level wants to have a campaign with no negative ads. And really, you know, he, he said he's dreamt about this campaign. He's an idealist, just like Santos is. And really, at some level, Josh is too, even though Josh is maybe a little bit more conflicted about it. But Blue has this kind of different ethical framework. You know, she's on the side of our good guys, but she has a kind of ends justifies the means way of thinking that I really appreciate in our story. You're right. It's refreshing in its way in this world. Yeah. When they're talking about the value of responding to the uh, attack ad with attack ads of their own and the idea of, you know, being stuck in the quagmire of negative ads, she tells Josh this story about this guy that... Guy falls in a hole. (laughs) And we just leave him there because he wasn't going to vote for us anyway. Exactly. We just (laughs) calmly, quietly (laughs) covered him up. I did the Marion Hoff Senate campaign. You know those charges? They did weird financial dealings with Taiwanese businessmen. He did. Those were the charges. Anyway, we ran against Barrett, clean as a bar of soap. We hit him first with everything we could find. By the time he hit back, the voters thought it was just another ugly campaign, a pox on both our houses. You're proud of that? I'm proud that Marienhoff defends Medicare and Medicaid in the Senate. I'm proud that he votes against every reckless Republican tax cut. With a blue team. And there's a real war going on. Josh, do you want the right wing to get their judges? No. Then stop being so queasy. Yeah. Well, that resonated to me also as a Trump III moment. Yeah, of course. As we've now got uh, Trumpkin himself has appointed, I think, a quarter of all federal judges. I mean, something, some, I don't know, I read some astounding number. Yeah. I also felt that a bit when Josh said, I think we lose a negative ad war. I think the other side is better at this, and I think they have more to work with. The other side being better at it, really, I was like, yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. that's been the case. But Lou seems like a by any means necessary kind of strategist. So when it comes to, you know, Josh saying they need to appoint a female spokesperson to respond to the anti-Santos ad, he describes someone, 40s soccer mom, so he's clearly not thinking about Donna. He doesn't even know that Lou has actually hired Donna the week previous to do Midwest Press. Mm, I forgot about that myself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so, so it's not like she shows up working for them for the first time in this capacity. Lou's already hired her for this smaller other role, and then she's pulling from her own bench 
elevating somebody for when they need it. So to me, it makes complete sense. And Lou's like incredulous that there's even an issue that Josh has with Bringer. He's like, she was great. And I feel like she gives the response that I was feeling when Josh talked to Donna the first time around when she applied for a job and he said no. And so that's also my reasoning for why Donna would have taken the job doing press without checking in with Josh because she wants the job and here's somebody who's going to give it to her. Fair enough. So we kind of have a, a bit of a rehash of that, you know, because Lou, Lou has puts them in the room together and says, like, work it out. Work it out. And we get that same thing of Josh being like, but you hurt my feelings. And Donna saying, yeah, but you hurt mine first by, you know, not letting me grow in the in the job that I was capable of doing more in. And really, they, they don't even get to actually resolve that in the moment because more news comes out when the news of the pro-choice lobby endorsing Vinick hits the wires. Mm hmm. So ultimately, Josh, I think at the end of the episode, you see the door opening up a little bit for him because Donna has good ideas. They're on their own side. They're an interest group jockeying for influence. You think their supporters are vote Republican no matter what their leadership says? Pull that. I bet 85% of them are dyed in the sackcloth Santos supporters. And then Josh says, all right, let's put that in the poll. See, I told you I could come up with a good poll question. Yeah, exactly. Hey, uh, one other uh, Will question. How about that big pratfall towards the end of the episode? Yeah, how'd that play for you? <laughs> I, I knew it was coming, so I was looking for it. It played like the opposite of a deleted scene, you know? Or what, how, how do I say this? <laughs> like, the, like the episode was running short. They're like, so throw that thing back in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fair enough. <laughs> um, the pratfall itself, I thought, was very convincing, and I hope you were okay. Yes, it was good fun to do. It was one of those things, I think, where... You know, they get like a stunt guy to show up. And I'm like, trust me, I can fall out of a chair. <laughs> Did they have a stunt guy? I don't remember exactly, but it's usually what happens when, when an actor is going to do anything <laughs> beyond just walk around. There's usually, you know, a lot of concern about safety and this and that. And anything that's like this, where like you're literally going to fly out of a chair. Yeah. Um, they usually have someone and they, you know, offer to have sometimes even a double do it. I, I don't really recall whether that was the case or they were like, it, it's Josh. He's only got <laughs> nine episodes left anyway. I just remember, I, I like to do everything that I can, and I am good at things like falling out of a chair. So I'm yeah. sure they put out some sort of mat down or something, but I remember just like, I'll, I'll just fall out of my chair. Yeah. I'll be okay. Uh, okay, so low grades for the fall, but I enjoyed doing it. No, no, no. High grades for the fall, low grades for the scene. Mm. Fair enough. Yeah, it was not necessary. <laughs> right. That's what I, like yeah. the, the whole scene just felt like, well, let's go see what Will's doing. <laughs> Yeah. Also, who tied a ribbon around his ball? And was there a second date? <laughs> and why was this the same ball that had now been wrapped in ribbon? Was it a different ball that was placed by somebody who didn't know about the presence of the first one? Yeah, that's a very good question. We may never know because <laughs> nobody cares about Will. Uh, if only somebody had the balls to ask these hard-hitting <laughs> questions. Rewatching the just for the last bit on the falling out of the chair bit. Yes, I I wished that the second throw. My memory is that there were three. Apparently, things are funny in threes, mm -hmm. and so I, I successfully throw the ball against the wall and catch it the first time. The second time, I wish I had pitched it like a little bit higher, like I was right. increasing each time, setting rather it up. than like why the hell did he do that on the third throw? Like, right, right. Why did he throw it so hard? Was he trying to fall over? Yes, yes, he was trying to fall <laughs> over. So I was, I was a little bit critical of my own performance there. I think my second ball trajectory was slightly off. You know, I think I would completely buy that because as we've discussed, you are a lover of cheap thrills like me, 
Right. And a great example of a cheap thrill would be to try and see how far you could lean back in a chair without it tipping over. Yes. While throwing a ball at just the right angle to keep your position intact. You know, like it's not enough just to stay in the, balanced in the chair. You also have to add this other element and catch it. And how far can you push it? The idea of the cheap thrill is to get close to, to falling of over. Of course. Without, right. Right. Yeah. I, I think there was a, that would have been a better approach to the scene. Were right. I to shoot it today, that would have been, <laughs> been my approach. I got a lifetime of regret. There's always the reboot. <laughs> That's right. Which, uh, should we announce? No. Yeah. We'll wait for later. In the... <laughs> so I wanted to go back to the Lou philosophy and contrast. They're not it with... booing. They're saying Lou. <laughs> right. And, and I'm saying brew. No. Nice. Bruno says to Vinick that there is a way for him to accept the endorsement of the pro-choice lobbying group and therefore cement his win in like, you know, this is the line that you were talking about. We've won 53 states, a couple of desert islands. And no need for negative ads. There's something nice about this moment for Bruno. I feel like it's unwritten, but I can't help but think about this moment of Bruno's in his career, that it feels different. The, this kind of discussion feels different from how Bruno talked about the Bartlett campaign when we first met him. There he felt a little bit more like Lou, you know, mm -hmm. where he was like, I'm the person who's here to help you win. You want to do things like this. You want to be lofty. I want to help you win. He says, yeah, we still win, but we win dirty. Wouldn't you rather outflank him on the left? You're right. That's a shift for him. Yeah. And in the backstory that I've created in my mind is that Bruno is looking at this as the, maybe the last campaign that he's ever going to work on. Like that he's looking at the end of his career and he wants to sort of get away from, he knows he's picked a winner basically. Like either strategy means that Vinick wins. And so he wants to go out with one where he really got to espouse the high-minded ideals that he usually has to undercut. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm planning to do a similar thing. When I sense that I'm on my final acting job, I'm going to try. <laughs> really go for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I like that, even if it's entirely just in my head, I, I like that coloration of his character. I mean, it's not entirely in my head because he is saying that. Like, no, he, yeah. I, I think you're absolutely, absolutely onto something. Yeah. But Vinick decides against it. You know, he, he says he is going to go to the Al Smith dinner, essentially to try and veer away from his pro-choice positions by emphasizing his caveats. There's just a great sort of chess series of chess moves that they all kind of know in their head. He goes to the Al Smith dinner and he knows he's going to do it by trying to emphasize the caveats, you know, by saying he's against the so-called partial birth abortion. But that means that Santos is going to hit him with negative ads about his hypocrisy. And that means they're going to hit back with their negative ads and ultimately win because they're right. better at it. The battle is joined in a negative fashion. Yeah. And that's sort of what it feels like the setup is when we finally get to the dinner. And we have this great final scene between the two of them in the kitchen. Epic ultimate scene to this episode. Yeah. I love that we don't actually get that the episode ends right before the actual dinner begins. Oh, for sure. I like that way of titling the uh, episode, you know, that like it's what's beyond the door, but we never actually go past the door. Yeah. And it's a great, I love the way it's staged and shot by Leslie Linka Glotter. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a, a great episode. It looks great. The acting's great. It's uh, well written. I love how it's shot and I love how they're in this tense 
moment we can hear just faintly but we can hear that they're starting to be introduced and uh, so they've got sort of final moments to hash out this uh, debate thing yeah it seems like they're just gonna sit there in that tension and just wait to go out but then santos breaks the silence finally and says next time you uh, decide to smear me maybe you'll have the guts to do it yourself yeah, there's a lot of rack focusing back and forth, and you're kind of wondering, is either of these guys going to engage the other? Yeah, there's a little bit of uh, spaghetti western feeling to it. Mm-hmm. Even though they aren't actually looking at each other, you're just like, who's, gonna, who's it going to be? Yeah. They get a moment where they both get to say what they really want. No negative ads. No attacks in our speeches out there. If we can have a real debate on the issues, just you and me. These are the things they really want, and they don't have Bruno, they don't have Lou or Josh or Sheila or anybody kind of getting in the way and they come to this agreement. But I also really love that this moment of detente doesn't mean that they're buddies. No, at all, at all. (laughs) And and yeah, I was almost, I was taken a little bit back when Vinick kind of turns it and kind of says like, well, you just signed your death warrant. The hell of a way to end your campaign. Oh, I'm just getting started. What a great line and kind of unexpected where they've just uh, kind of come to an agreement, what seems like a gentleman's agreement. Right. like, all right, sucker, you're done. Yeah. And Santos says, oh, I'm just getting started. Like, it's so great. It's, (laughs) it it does avoid a feeling of, uh, of it being pat, you know, of being too cheesy. It's like, oh, look, common ground achieved. It's like, no, they're still out for blood. It avoids a sentimental sort of maudlin ending in the best way possible. I also like the sort of the stillness of the moment and the fact that we've got just the two candidates after 45 minutes of these candidates and their staffs discussing everything that happens at every step along the way. Finally, it's just the two guys, and that's where you can get something done. Yeah. I'm going to end this with saying for the, I don't know, sixth time, great episode. Great episode. All right. That does it for another, I think I'm going to say it also. Great episode of the West Wing Weekly. <laughs> I know you love it when I say that. Great episode. Great work. <laughs> Both of us. boy. If you were here, I'd give you a cookie. Oh, thanks. If I, if I were there, I would remind you that we still have many episodes to go and watch out for hubris. That's right. You'd give me a cookie, but I'd have to go outside, turn around three times and spit the cookie out. Spit the cookie out. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much to Zach McNeese, Margaret Miller, and Nick Song for helping us make this episode and so many others. And thanks to Radiotopia. We're proud to be a member of Radiotopia, Mm -hmm. a group of cutting-edge podcasts. You can find out more about the others at radiotopia.fm. And you can find out more about our show on our website, thewestwingweekly.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And, um, you know, time is running out to follow us on one of those places. It'll be like turning on MSNBC just to find the last five seconds of a negative attack ad. If you follow us now, you'll get a little bit of something. But if you wait any longer... yeah. No, any second we're going to start uh, tweeting and posting really great stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. What's What's next? next? Radiotopia.